Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Last night, my friends and I went skating in an outdoor rink in the park. We knew it was one of our last chances before the thaw, so we stayed long past sundown and after everyone else had gone home. Basking in the yellow glow of two floodlights, one on either side of the rink, we alternated between playing hockey and warming up by sipping hot cocoa from a thermos. The wind picked up around 9pm, so we decided we'd play one last game before calling it quits. The first team to score three goals would win. It was Peter, Christine, and Adam versus Elizabeth, Seamus, and I. We were about to get creamed when suddenly the sky lit up bright as day. A rumbling like that of a jet engine could be heard overhead, and a large gleaming object came falling from the sky and into the woods, leaving a trail of smoke in its wake. As it crashed into the ground, it produced a loud booming noise that sent the birds in the forest flying in all directions. What the hell was that? asked Seamus. A plane? Elizabeth said meekly. Peter cupped his hands to the side of his eyes and peered toward the tree line. It can't be a plane, he said, squinting. It's too small for that. On the horizon, the brightness began to fade, turning the sky a mix of purple and pink. It was obviously a meteorite, duh, said Christine. No, it looked smooth, whispered Peter. Adam rolled his eyes. <laughs> Whatever, guys, he said in a nasally voice. It's late and cold. Can we just finish the game and go home? Law and order is about to come on and I don't want to miss it. Seamus skated toward the other end of the rink, the end closest to the woods, his eyes locked in the distance. I'm going. The guy was almost seven foot tall and was built like a refrigerator. He had nothing to fear and feared nothing. If there was ever a person to be adventurous with, it was him. I didn't know what we were going to discover, but I wanted to see it for myself. One had fallen from the sky. With that hulk of a man leading the charge, I didn't feel like there was anything to worry about. Me too, I said. Without a word, Elizabeth scurried to Seamus' side and hooked an arm around his, squeezing it tightly. Christine checked her watch and shrugged. Eh, I don't have anywhere to be. Why not? I'm going to be really disappointed if we don't all get superpowers from this, though. Peter grinned devilishly. I call dibs on hyperelasticity. Can't go wrong with long-legged limbs. Adam puffed his cheeks in a boyish manner. Seriously, guys? We're just gonna wander into the freaking woods in the middle of the night, chasing a piece of potentially radioactive space debris? We looked at one another, responding with a mix of shrugs and nods. Adam threw his hands up in defeat. Fine. Okay, whatever. If we all die a slow and painful death, I'm suing all of you. In the time it took to change from our skates into our boots, the sky had regained most of its navy hue except for a strip of orange light visible through the trees. Something in my gut told me not to go, but it was too late to chicken out. I wondered if anyone else was feeling the same, but 
I didn't dare be the one to show weakness. Instead, I followed the others, my feet sinking into the untouched snow as we marched into the forest. After hours of wearing skates, my feet felt like they were walking on clouds. We'd been hiking for almost 20 minutes before someone finally decided to object to our little adventure. To my surprise, it wasn't Adam who broke the silence, but Christine. Let's go back. There's probably bears and wolves out here. It's dangerous, she said in a trembling voice. No one's forcing you to come, replied Seamus dismissively. Christine stopped and stared at us as we walked by her one by one as though waiting for someone else to voice their opinion, or maybe offer an escort back. In hindsight, I regret not volunteering. Maybe it would have had a domino effect on the others and we all would have gotten home safely. Finding herself without support, Christine left on an irritated grunt and continued to the back of the pack. I'm not sure how long it took me to realize something was off. One minute, I was second to last in our little procession, and the next, I noticed the absence of Christine's footsteps. When I turned around, she was gone. Not off in the distance or taking a break, just gone. Guys, Christine, I started. Look, shouted Sam as pointing ahead. I stretched my head out, trying to see what had caught his attention. I could just barely make out the source of the light we'd been following. A fire had spread through the dry bushes a few yards ahead, and I could hear it crackling in the otherwise silent forest. Having forgotten all about Christine, I ran to the front of the pack to get a better look. Leading up to the fire were broken branches and clipped trees revealing the exact path that the falling object had taken before it reached the ground. There it was, in a relatively small crater, surrounded by debris. It was a human-sized, cylindrical casket, its surface completely smooth and unmarked, but for a row of flashing lights under a viewport near the top. I got as close as I could get to it without walking into the fire and watched as the lights blinked in succession. Guys, you have to check this out, I called, turning around. My friends were gone. I turned back toward the device, and to my surprise, found that the flames had all burned out, giving me the opportunity to get even closer. I was torn between chasing after my friends and investigating the sci-fi-esque object. A knot weaving its way through my stomach, I tiptoed carefully to the casket. I expected the ground to be warm and for heat to emanate from the metallic object, but the entire area seemed to have cooled down in an instant. In fact, I only then realized how cold I was. With a deep breath and a shiver, I placed my palm cautiously on the smooth metallic surface. The alloy was... Unlike any I touched in my life, solid yet malleable. It buckled to the touch, but bounced back as soon as I pulled away. The closest thing I could compare it to was memory foam, if memory foam was made of steel. I played around with the cylinder until my focus shifted to the viewport. There was 
something inside. A lot of things crossed my mind at that moment. I imagined some sort of alien creature hibernating in its pod, a science experiment gone wrong, or an astronaut fallen from the International Space Station. The truth, however, was much more bizarre. Much worse. Nested inside the odd device was Peter. His eyes were missing, his teeth had been pulled, and a copper tube seemed to run straight through one ear and out the other. But it was unmistakably him. I let out a horrified gasp as I fell on my behind. What the hell? I said in disbelief. What had happened to Peter? How had he gotten in the machine so quickly? Why were his eyes gone? Could I break him out? Reeling, I forced myself to my feet and tried to find a seam in the casket. I punched the buttons and knocked on the viewport, desperately trying for a way to open it, but failing miserably. I realized I would need help and decided to track down the others. Surely Seamus could tear the casket open and save Peter, or... What was left of Peter, at least. Frantic, unable to focus, dizzy, and scared out of my wits, I ran back to where I'd last seen my friends. Their footprints scattered off in every direction. I followed the largest and smallest pair, Seamus and Elizabeth. They led me farther into the woods in a relatively straight line until they turned into a mess, circling the same area over and over again. The snow at my feet was soaked in blood and mud and I could see drag marks from the center of a small clearing to a large oak tree. I heard a crack above and lifted my gaze only to find Seamus' remains hung over multiple branches. Eyes missing, teeth missing, hands missing. I lost my lunch. From somewhere behind me I heard a whimper. I turned to my heels and I heard a shrub crying. Elizabeth? From between the branches she looked at me, her eyes puffy and the lower part of her face coated in snow. She was covered in scratches and grime. Oh my god, you're alive, she said. What happened? I asked in shock, unable to think of something more comforting to say. That, That thing attacked. She blew her nose on her sleeve. It got Adams, so we ran. I reached a hand to her, but she recoiled in fear. What thing? I asked. I didn't see anything. What are you talking about? You didn't see it because you were... She paused, trying to find the right word. Frozen? We called out to you, but you didn't answer. It didn't move. We tried to get you to come back for over an hour, but you were totally out of it. Adam tried to drag you back himself. But that's when the thing started chasing us. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I'd only been at the casket for a few minutes at most. I don't understand, I murmured, furrowing my eyebrows. All I could think of was that we needed to get out of the woods and we needed to get somewhere safe. I didn't want what happened to Seamus or Peter to happen to me. Again, I reached for Elizabeth, and again she recoiled, looking at me as if I was some sort of monster. 
I don't know. But Lizzie, we can talk over it later. We have to go, I urged. She sniffled and shook her head. Not without Seamus. My stomach dropped. Did she not know what had happened to him just a few feet away? Lizzie, he's gone, I said. We have to go. Now. She let out an animal-like whine, wiped her eyes, nodded, and finally accepted my hand. As I pulled her to her feet, she saw Samish's body in the oak tree. She shrieked so loud that it hurt my ears. I wrapped my arms around her and started walking quickly while she continued to sob. I can't remember anything after that until I left the woods. I was in shock. My mind went blank. I don't know if I comforted Elizabeth or if we just walked together in silence. Either way, I made it out without her. The sun was rising. I was frozen to the core and I realized I'd lost about eight hours of time. I have no idea what happened to Elizabeth. I don't know if something got her or if we just got separated somewhere along the way. All I know is that she's missing. And so is everyone else, including Christine. I wish I knew what happened, but I'm too afraid of going back in the woods to find out. So take my advice. If you're out one night and see a second dusk, don't go towards it. Just turn around and go home. It's not safe. My father is dead. He died last fall of complications from acute lymphatic sarcoidosis after first getting sick with it just two months earlier. It was strange how fast it all happened, and given what I know, I wonder if there was more to his sudden passing. For his part, my dad never questioned it or even complained about receiving a surprise death sentence at 58. He's always been a private person, stoic and reserved most of the time, though he could still be funny and warm when the mood struck. I knew he'd spent most of his career as a geneticist, working on hush-hush government contracts, and growing up, I'd almost seen him as a kind of nerdy spy, assigned to some top-secret mission he could never tell his family about. As I got older, I'd laugh at that. Odds were, I figured, he was just a normal scientist working on something boring that had a federal grant or something, and the only reason he didn't talk about it was because he didn't want to get sued by someone or maybe he just had an appreciation for how not interested we would be. Except, in the last week of his life, Dad was put on a lot of pain medication, and rather than make him sleep, it seemed to wire him up, making him fidgety and talkative. The nervous energy and lack of inhibition, combined with the knowledge that he was winding down on his last chances he had to talk to his son in this life, seemed to have a powerful effect on the man. He began telling me all kinds of stories, some from his childhood, others from this time with mom before I was born. As the pain got worse and the medicine became more frequent, he began telling me other things too. Like the two months he's been working on the Buried Kings project. 
He'd been lead on various high-clearance projects for several years at that point, developing a reputation for being a good problem-solver when someone's experiments hit a snag or their research needed a fresh set of eyes. Most of his work involved the study and alteration of the human genome, understanding the effects of radiation and biological weapons on DNA, for example, as well as treatments or resistances that could be developed against these effects. He said it was usually theoretical or low-level experimentation, as whenever he reached a certain milestone in something, within a few days, he was shifted to something else entirely. When the explanation being that his old work was now being taken over by a different department. He knew what that really meant. They were divvying up the work so no one person knew what they were really doing. He understood the precaution, but it still made him a bit worried that he might be contributing to something much different than what he'd thought. Something much more dangerous. Telling himself he was being paranoid, he tried to keep his unfound fears at bay, and most of the time he was successful. That is until he was woken up one night and told to pack a bag, that he was going to a research bunker in the west to work on a new project. It was called The Buried Kings. Henry, you know how your body has little microorganisms in it? Bacteria, fungi, viruses, protozoa, you name it. But the idea of it is one thing. I think it's easy to think of it as a few germs on your skin or in your body. Something alien and sparsely distributed that can be kept at bay with some soap or hand sanitizer. But nothing could be further from the truth. Your body, all of our bodies, are small universes for literally thousands upon thousands of different species, and they aren't all aliens trying to invade your body either. They are your body. Years ago, when they were working on the Human Genome Project, they figured out that our genome only contains about 23,000 protein-coding genes, which was about 20% of what we'd expect to find. But if that was true, where were the other 80% coming from? We figured out over time that what we call the human organism is actually a supraorganism, and that the majority of our cells aren't actually what we define as human. There are actually 10 times more microbial cells in the human body than human cells, and the genetic contribution of those non-human cells isn't five times greater than the human ones. It's hundreds. Yet, for all that we've learned, we still have such a limited understanding of how human genetics actually work and all of the interactions and influences between the myriad of things that make up your body, much less those things that exist in the broader world. Strange and forgotten things that had once been known and maybe understood in a time before science and reason, back when superstition was the vehicle for explaining the unknown and a man's ignorance was a given rather than a dirty secret. I'm a man of science, Henry, and I think it does a lot of good in the world, or at least it can. But I also have come to understand that we're not much different than those that came before us, and certainly no better. We've traded ignorance for arrogance, unable to accept that despite progress and effort and the passage of time, there is much we were never meant to know. They'd found the box during an archaeological dig in what's now western Romania, buried beneath the stone floor of a small temple back in the 2nd century Dacia. 
The box contained numerous writings in various languages, as well as several objects initially deemed by experts to be of some unknown religious significance. It wasn't until several of the people at the dig site began to grow ill and change that the location was quarantined and secured, and it wasn't until they began translating the writings that they gained some dim understanding of what they were actually dealing with. The items in the box were just items, chosen more for their structure and resilience to decay than anything. Certain metals and minerals are particularly good hosts, you see, and the thing living on the pendant we had at the bunker was likely several million years old. They'd been experimenting for years when I was brought in, doing chemical analysis, microscopic and sub-micro readings and studies, live subject testing on both animals and people. And for all that, they knew that there was something tiny and alive nestled into the crevices of an old pendant fashioned into a crude metal triangle. Something that, given enough exposure, made some people get sick and die, and others start to warp in their bodies or their minds. The changes, they went far beyond anything I knew was possible within the confines of a single organism. It was almost as though it was sparking some kind of single-generation evolution, but with a force and logic that was so alien that it defied our ability to even begin to understand it. I spent my first week reviewing the past research with some mixture of wonder and horror, and the next two redoing building on the testing that had been done before. It amounted to nothing. The microbe could not be altered or even sampled, and any more extreme attempts to dislodge it from the artifact would risk losing the organism itself, if it could even be hurt or killed. No one was willing to say that last part, at least not then, but the unsteady hum of tension when I asked the question told me all I needed to know. They had a tiger by the tail. And it was going to take more than a scientific method to learn how to tame it. So, we went back to the texts. Filled with ritual and allegory, superstition and strange imagery. The primary topic repeated across the writings from the box was about the buried kings. Some kind of being or beings that were worshipped by small cults in parts of both Greek and Roman empires, including a sizable following in the kingdom of Dacia itself. Much of it had been deemed useless by my predecessors, but I disagreed. Reading between the lines of some of the rituals and accounts of the king's power, I could see analogs to some of the effects we were seeing here. People sickening and growing mad, changing into beasts and demons and gods, and then, of course... There was the ritual of awakening. They called it the tasting of the key. Replicating the ritual itself was very easy. Based on what was described and what we knew, the mechanics of it were simple enough. The issue was what it required. A human sacrifice. Not in the way you're thinking, of course. No stone tablet or curved knife. Just an enlisted soldier listed as KIA and brought into the project under the guise of protecting his country. They'd done it before, of course, but it had been before my time. And even if I didn't have to specifically request it, I knew it was my theory that led into locking him into a room with that thing. 
still, when they handed me the microphone, I didn't hesitate. I knew better. I didn't have to act as cold as they were. But I couldn't look unwilling to do my part. Or my role in the project could quickly become much more practical. So I hit the button. Told the young man to approach the locket, to pick it up, to lick the back of it, holding his tongue to it for a full twenty count before putting it around his neck, with the licked side of the pendant touching the skin on his chest. He was a good soldier, and he did what he was told, strange as it probably seemed to him, and I had just enough time to feel relief that my little reenactment of the ritual had failed, and there was no sign of him growing sick or being affected whatsoever. And then the man began to scream as he broke apart. His body rippled and twisted as it shifted this way and that, jutting out in a dozen places like taffy pulled by invisible hands. Blood and other liquids sprayed out at first, but those wounds were quickly closed by the rolling tides of his flesh and bone as he was torn apart and reformed over and over, somehow growing larger as he spread across the room like a pink fungus spiked with broken shards of white. I kept expecting him to die. But he didn't. He just wailed and then babbled from one or two or sometimes ten mouths as he shifted and grew. I began to wonder if he would fill the entire room, but no. I think it stopped growing, and now it was moving in reverse. Shrinking back down, pulling itself back together into a shape that made more sense, but was no less horrible. It was a man. Not the private who'd been sacrificed, but someone or something much different. Taller, with dark hair beginning to come in, and eyes that seemed to faintly glow in the shadow of a jutting brow. Eyes that found me behind the one-way glass and pinned me to the spot. Ubi, I heard the voice through the speaker, but I heard it in my head as well. This time in English. Where? A bunker under the ground in America. The man glowered at me, his nostrils flaring as he spoke again in a harsher tone. Quad. In my mind. When? Shuddering, I said the answer as I thought it. 2014. The thing that looked like a human smiled now, his lips pulling back to show sharp, white teeth. Physiologia. This word was accompanied by a flood of images and ideas. I couldn't hold on to most of them, but one stood above the rest. Home. I was terrified. Not sure whether to try and respond further or stay silent, I looked around at the others in the room and realized they were all completely still, just staring like statues as I had this strange, stunted exchange with this creature that had eaten the soldier in the other room. I looked back at the man-thing. He was still smiling. He gave me a small nod before he was suddenly... just gone. For the next month, I was the guinea pig. We all were. 
New people were brought in to interview us, test us, observe us. Even with all the safety protocols, there was no guarantee that we weren't infected or somehow compromised. But fortunately, there were enough important people in the bunker that they couldn't easily just steal us or bury us out in the desert. And given that the pendant and writings had disappeared along with the creature, there was no more project to conduct. I still think they might would have killed me just to be safe if it wasn't for how unbelievable it had all been. No one would ever really listen, and I had sense enough to not try in the first place. Not even to you or your mother, at least not until now. But horrible and scary as it all was, I've never lost sight of how important it was. I don't know if we woke up something old or just saw a glimpse into a world that's around us all the time. A dramatic reminder that most of all of this isn't about us. As much as we like to pretend otherwise. Either way, I wanted to share it with you before it was too late. And maybe you'll think it's the drugs talking or a fanciful story I made to impress my son. It's not what it is. But it doesn't matter so long as you take that lesson to heart. Always be curious and proud of what you can do, but don't let your curiosity turn you reckless or your pride make you arrogant. There are things we'll never know. Should never know. And some things... Some things are best left buried. For the first three years after graduating college, I toiled away as a temp worker, bouncing from agency to agency in the hopes of finding somewhere that would hire me for good. The economy being less than favorable, it was hard to find a job in my field. With student loans eating away at my meager paychecks, I decided it was time to lower my expectations and apply for any permanent position with a reasonable salary, regardless of whether or not it fit my skill set. That's how I wound up working for the Office of Risk Management at the local university. My duties were limited to the oh-so-thrilling administrative task of following up on the backlog of accident reports, ensuring they were properly filled out, sorting old files, and archiving them. Just when I thought I was going to drown in the monotony, I started noticing something strange with several reports. It was a Friday afternoon when I realized something was amiss. After a long and boring week, it was taking all my willpower not to doze off on the stack of papers in front of me. Just as I felt my head dipping and eyelids growing heavy, an answer on the questionnaire I was reading filled me with a deep sense of deja vu. Were there any witnesses to this event? The employee had checked the yes box and had written a quick description. Yes, a man in a red shirt. I squinted at the simple words on the page. They were so familiar, but I figured my brain was just lagging from the end of the week. I'd probably read the description twice. Without giving it much thought, I finished reading through the document and moved on to the next report. That's when the very same question caught my eye. Were there any witnesses to this event? Yes, 
adult male in his 40s, burgundy sweater. It had to be a coincidence, right? I checked the first report again and started comparing the two. The incidents had occurred in different buildings and happened about two weeks apart. One dealt with a man suffering from a heart attack, while the other was a simple case of a sprained ankle. The only common elements were the man in red, and the fact that his contact information was missing. Usually we'd get a name and a phone number in case we needed a testimony. I tried to get back to work, but the feeling of deja vu persisted. I felt like this wasn't the first time I'd read about the man in red. Unable to focus on my insufferably boring job, I started going through the reports I'd archived earlier that week. Sure enough, a man matching the witness's description was present in other files. He was described using a variety of different adjectives, but each painted the same picture. A somewhat tall man with dark hair in his mid-forties, wearing a crimson sweater and black pants. No contact information available. Yes, middle-aged gentleman in a crimson sweater. Yes, stranger wearing red, approximately 5'9", brown hair. Yes, a guy sitting on a bench, about 45 years old, didn't get his name. It went on and on. The fact that the Office of Risk Management hadn't noticed the reoccurrence didn't surprise me all that much. I'd been looking at these reports all week and had only been alerted to it because I was reading them back to back. The accident reports arrived weeks, months, sometimes even years apart, so I didn't blame my colleagues for their oversight. There was only one conclusion I could draw from the bizarre phenomenon. The man was somehow the cause of these incidents. Why else would he have been in the scene of so many of them? If he'd only been spotted once or twice, I could have chalked it up to coincidence. There was a clear pattern here. I had at least ten reports mentioning him. Was he a disgruntled employee trying to get back at the university for firing him? Was it sabotage? Questions swirling in my head, I went home for the weekend, relinquishing the investigation to my future self. When Monday morning came, I was surprisingly eager to get back to work. Something about the situation had triggered my inner sleuth with a pair of fresh eyes. I re-examined the reports and drew the same exact conclusion. It had to be foul play. And something had to be done. And I felt it was my responsibility to make sure it wouldn't get swept under the rug. My boss needed to hear about this. With a stack of reports under my arm, I knocked on Mr. Johnson's door. Come in, he called, voice muffled by the thick wooden door guarding his office. I stepped inside and waved meekly. As soon as I saw Mr. Johnson, I lost my nerve. I'm sure he didn't try to look intimidating, but something about his perpetual scowl and thick arched eyebrows slashed away my confidence. It had been unfair to accuse him of being pathetic, but he certainly made no effort to make me feel more at ease. With a flick of his wrist, he invited me to take a seat while I shakily held the reports against my chest. A deep and calming breath was all it took to give me enough courage to hand him the files. I began pointing out every instance of the man in red, fully expecting Mr. Johnson to take matters seriously. He looked at the papers quietly, rubbing his temples as though battling a headache. The bitter look on his face as he shuffled through the reports made me even more nervous than I already was. I felt like a kid sitting at a principal office waiting for a review. 
Suddenly, the stern look on his face broke. He started laughing a hearty laugh as he tossed the papers back toward me. You're shitting me, kid. The school colors are garnet and gray. People wear red all the time to show support. There's nothing weird about it, he told me. It's not just the shirt color, I protested. Everyone describes the same guy, an older white male with dark brown hair. He waved his hand in a dismissive manner. You just described half the faculty members, kid. He had a point. But even if he was right and we were dealing with multiple people, wasn't it still strange that the contact field was constantly left blank? What about the missing information? I asked. Bosch shrugged at me. You need to lay off the crying dramas, kiddo. There's nothing weird about it. More often than not, we don't get everyone's contact information, whether they're wearing red, blue, hell, rainbow, for all I care. It's not a big deal. Fortunately, he was right. I'd been so focused on the man in red that I hadn't thought about how to deal with other witnesses. Oftentimes, several people were listed on the form, but we only collected one or two names. Still, I couldn't shake the feeling that my instincts were right, even if the boss argued otherwise. I'm, I'm sorry, you're right, I lied. I'll get back to work now. Sorry I bothered you. I couldn't risk pressing the matter. The last thing I wanted was for my boss to think I was some sort of conspiracy nut. I couldn't afford to lose this job. We exchanged a cordial goodbye and I returned to my office. It was time for a bit of an ethical no-no. There was only one way to get more information. I had to contact the victims directly under the guise that I needed clarification on their reports. It wasn't a complete lie. Their files were ready to be archived and forgotten, but it was the only chance I had. I sent an email to dozens of employees, but only three of them agreed to meet with me. My first interview was with Christine Boone. I was nervous as I made my way to the office of a woman who twisted her ankle outside of Lemoore, one of the buildings on the east end of the campus. Following her accident report, it was determined she'd slipped on a cracked chunk of pavement. A section on the sidewalk was subsequently demolished and repaved to prevent a similar incident from happening in the future. If nothing else, the Office of Risk Management was efficient at enforcing changes, though it was less about ensuring the safety of students and employees and more about preventing lawsuits. Miss Boone's office smelled like potpourri left out in the sun for too long. Paintings of flowers adorned the walls and faux stained glass ornament hung from the window, creaking with each rotation. I had a trouble keeping my eye off the hypnotic colors as it projected on the walls. So you're here about my accident? She asked suddenly. I took a seat on a patchy guest chair and nodded. Yeah, um, can you tell me what happened? I asked. Talking to people was never really my strong suit. I wasn't sure where to start or what to ask her. Thankfully, she'd started her story while I followed along with her report. I was carrying a box of supplies to the arts department. I got distracted by something and my heel caught a crack. Before I knew what happened, my ankle snapped and I fell, she explained. I cringed. It sounds painful. It was, she replied. Do you normally take that route? I inquired. Yeah, but I'm usually careful when I walk around campus. The sidewalks are in awful shape, so I have to watch my step. 
You're lucky, you know. Navigating this old campus is pretty tough in high heels, she answered, motioning to her stilettos. I glanced at her report, unsure of whether or not to bring up the man in red. You said you were distracted that day? What distracted you? I pressed. Ugh, just some weird guy, she said. Weird guy? Miss Boone nodded. Just a really weird guy. He gave me the creeps. He was standing in the middle of the sidewalk. Ten, maybe fifteen meters ahead of me. He was staring right at me. It made me really uneasy. I was trying to sidestep him when I felt some kind of pull on my ankle. I twisted it and fell. He saw the whole thing happen and never lifted a hand to help me. What an asshole. My lips twisted in a frown. Wow, I murmured sympathetically. She leaned back against her chair and glanced at the ceiling. Weird thing is, he just kind of disappeared. I mean, at that point I was tending to my foot, but I swear one second he was there and the next he was gone. That sounded strange. I flipped through her questionnaire and pointed to the entry about the man in red. Was it the guy you described here? I asked. She reached for a pair of reading glasses and a look at the paper and nodded. Yeah, he saw the whole thing, but like I said, he must have run off or something. Maybe I'm just not giving him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he ran to get help. I don't know. Have you seen him since? I asked. She shook her head. No, but if I ever do, I'm sure I'd recognize him. Something about that dark look in his eyes. I'll never forget it. That was all I needed to hear. But I asked her a few follow-up questions to make my interview seem a little more legitimate. I didn't want her running back to my boss asking questions. Once that was done, I ended the interview. My second interview was with Andrea Harmon. A few days passed between my first and second interview. By then, I'd practiced what I was going to say. I wanted to come off as confident and professional, but as soon as I saw the woman in front of me, I found myself faltering. Andrea Harmon was a very attractive lady kind of woman that'd stop a man dead in their tracks. She'd suffered a stroke a few years prior while at the gym, but you wouldn't know by looking at her. I swallowed hard and adjusted my suffocatingly tight collar. Uh, um, I babbled hesitantly. Can, can you describe what happened to you the day of the, uh, uh, the stroke? I stuttered. She seemed strangely calm for someone who'd suffered such a traumatic event. And again, it had happened a while ago, so it wasn't as though the pain was still raw in her mind. I just started going back to my normal routine at the gym. You know, trying to get rid of my belly fat. I had to be put on bed rest for the last two months of my pregnancy, so I was really looking forward to moving around and getting in shape again, she explained. She certainly didn't look like she had any belly fat on her. So you were working out when it happened? I questioned, regaining my composure. She nodded. Yes, I remember everything clearly up until the stroke. And then things get a little fuzzy, she told me. Just tell me what you remember, I replied as I tried my best to avoid looking down her blouse. She drummed her fingertips along her desk absentmindedly. 
Her eyes wandered towards the corner of her office. I was well into my workout. I picked elliptical six because that's my favorite number. So I was doing good, really good. I kept telling myself, that's it, Andrea, keep going. Get rid of that baby bump to stay motivated. And then something caught my attention. The heart rate monitor on the screen turned on. She paused, turning to me to see my reaction. Confused, I raised an eyebrow. The grave look in her eyes suggested I should have noticed something unusual with her statement. What's so odd about that? I asked. I wasn't holding the sensors, she said sharply while making grabbing motions with her hands. I had one of those fancy watches with an integrated heart monitor. My husband had got it for me when I told him I wanted to get back in shape. He was always there for me like that, she explained. So the monitor starts flashing numbers, 90, 100, 145, but I swear I wasn't holding the bars. My own monitor was showing a stable 120, 130 BPM the whole time. Looking back, I guess that was the first sign of the stroke. I guess I was imagining it. But it got worse than that. As the heart rate monitor continued to increase, I started to feel like something was pushing against me, like there was someone on the elliptical behind me. She said, her face contorting into disgust. I must have been pretty scary, I commented. It was. I turned around a few times, but there was no one there. Gave me goosebumps, man. Again, I realize it's probably a side effect of the stroke. She paused and frowned. It wasn't long before I saw my face in the mirror. The right half was drooping, and I knew something was up right away. I tried to call for help, I tried to speak, but my tongue felt swollen and I just couldn't get the words out. It was terrifying. I was trapped in my own body and it felt like someone was touching me. I could feel arms wrapping around my torso and squeezing the air out of my lungs. I could feel hands on my face stretching my skin down. Did anyone notice what was happening at that point? No one, not even the guy on the elliptical to my right. I was embarrassed to go to the gym during peak hours, so I picked a time where it was empty. But of course, this socially inept jerk decided it was fine to take the machine next to mine when all the other ones were free. Can you imagine? I kept catching him staring at me in the mirror during my workout, but he didn't react at all when I started having the stroke. She said, sounding appalled. Wait, there was someone next to you and he didn't do anything? I asked, surprised. Yeah, a guy in a garnet sweatshirt. Way too hot to wear for a workout, but who am I to judge? He was going really slowly on his elliptical, too. Like he was playing out a scene in slow motion. I tried to wave to get his attention, but my arms wouldn't move. That's as much as I remember. Apparently I fell face first, and then someone finally called the ambulance, she informed me. Did anyone speak to the man in red? I asked. She shook her head. I only filled out the accident report weeks later, when I got out from the hospital. By then, they said it was impossible to track him down, and he didn't come forward on his own. There was a couple of witnesses who did come forth, though, so I figured one less didn't matter. I pretended to write something on the chart, then smiled and pulled away. All right. Thank you very much for your help. I think that's all I needed to know, I told her. Something about what she'd said stuck with me. I went to the gym a couple times a week. 
The ellipticals were placed sequentially from left to right, one to six. She'd been on elliptical six when it happened, which meant it was the last on the row. How was it then that she'd seen the man in red to her right? My third interview was with Brandon Druga. Let's make one thing perfectly clear, Brandon said dryly as he escorted me to a quiet room at the far end of the hallway. I'll answer your questions, but make it snappy. I've got a department to run and a meeting in ten. We sat in a tiny space with nothing but two conference room chairs, a desk, and a landline. The suited man in front of me fiddled with his cell phone, never giving me a second glance. It was clear to me that he only agreed to meet because he thought it was mandatory. I was determined to make sure he never found out it wasn't. He looked like the kind of guy who'd easily have me fired if he discovered the truth. Right. I just want to go over the accident report you filed a couple months ago. I said nervously. Already, I could feel sweat trickling down the sides of my face. Mr. Druger rubbed at his thick salt and pepper beard with one hand while answering emails with the other. What about it? He asked impatiently. I knew I didn't have much time with this guy, and frankly, I didn't want to spend much more time with him anyway, so I cut to the chase. You reported seeing a man in red. I was wondering if you could tell me more about him, I requested. For a split second, the stern expression on his face faded. I could have sworn I saw fear in his eyes. However, it wasn't long before his poker face reappeared. He was in the stairwell when it happened, on a platform between two flights. I didn't hear him go up or down the stairs ahead of me, so I think he'd been standing there for a while, he uttered, lowering his voice. He didn't look right. I can't really explain it. Something about him made my damn skin crawl. Did you speak to him? I asked. Yeah. I asked him what the fuck he was doing there, but he just glared at me. Then I started feeling winded. I'm a healthy guy, okay? I don't care what the doctors say. I don't have cholesterol problems. My ticker was fine. There was no reason for me to have a heart attack, he said, slamming his hand against the desk angrily. Was he implying what I thought he was implying? Did he just have too much pride to admit that he'd had health issues? Before I could ask another question, he spoke again, his voice even lower. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care how crazy this sounds. I'm telling you, that guy wasn't normal. Murmur, Mr. Drug as he averted his gaze. He gave me that heart attack. I just know it. I was taken aback by his bold claim. You mean because he startled you? The man shook his head, but didn't volunteer more information. I felt as though Brandon Druga wanted to say more, but couldn't bring himself to open up. He needed to be coaxed. Hoping to gain his trust, I took the honest route and explained myself. Do you think he triggered the heart attack somehow? Look, Mr. Druga, I don't want to be forward, but I've been researching this man. I don't think you're the first person who's seen him. I think he's been going around campus hurting people. I'm trying to figure out what's going on here, but I need more answers. Can you help me? Brandon hesitated once more, then finally opened up. What I'll tell you today you can't repeat to anyone, understand? Understood, 
I don't think he... It... Was human. This is going to sound insane, but I know what I saw. He didn't have a reflection. He didn't have a shadow. He... His legs kind of faded halfway down, whispered Brandon in a voice so low I had to strain to hear him. I swear, he was some kind of ghost. That was the last thing I expected to hear from someone like Mr. Druga. I think Brandon saw the look of shock in my eyes. I hoped it wasn't going to make him clam up again. Thankfully, he finished. I felt fine up until I saw him. The entire stairwell became cold, and I started feeling pressure in my chest. I fell over, clutching my shirt. Just as I started blacking out, I heard him laugh. Next thing I knew, I was being pulled onto a stretcher. We sat there in silence for a long moment. I was digesting what he told me, and he seemed lost in thought. An alarm on his phone went off, causing me to jump out of my skin. Your meeting? I asked. Yes, he replied. Thank you for your time, I promise. I'm not going to tell anyone what you told me about this, I said. He gave me a short nod and headed out the door, but stopped as he passed the threshold. Tell me if you get to the bottom of this, okay? He requested. Yeah, I answered. Once the interviews were done, I returned to my office and glanced at all the reports that mentioned the man in red. I spread them across my desk to try and find a connection. When I ran out of desk room, I used the floor. It was as I was spacing them out that I finally found the link between them. Every single sighting of the man in red had occurred in or around the same four buildings. These weren't just any random buildings on campus either. They formed the perimeter around one of the university's main parking lots. Even still, the buildings had very little in common, except for their proximity. Veneer was the oldest of our four facilities. It was built in 1954. It closed down for a while, but was renovated recently to make room for the School of Psychology. Munpettits, found diagonally across the parking lot from Veneer, was built in 1973 and has since been host to the gym, a swimming pool, and the largest library on campus. Le Moreau, Montpetit's next-door neighbor, was built in 1978. It was later connected to Montpetit's and Veneer through a series of overpasses. FSS, the university's shiny new state-of-the-art social sciences facility, was finished in 2012 with all the floors connected to Veneer. Some considered it to be a new wing of the old building. Like I mentioned earlier, at the center of these four buildings was a parking lot. This summer, the lot was fenced off for construction work. The university wanted to turn an area into a green space and a courtyard. It was supposed to be done by the start of the fall semester, but construction crews came across several setbacks, the most notable of which was the car they unearthed about a month ago. The license plate on the car dated back to the late 1960s. Apparently, before the parking lot was a parking lot, there had been some sort of student housing facility, which had been bulldozed in the early 1970s. It was assumed the car had been abandoned inside the old residence and buried along with it. 
I decided to cast a wider net, going back through decades of accident reports in and around those four particular buildings, I found the burgundy-clad man ever so often. He was first seen in 1975 when the scaffolding came apart and caused construction worker to fall to his death. He was present in 2003 when a student slipped on the ice and was paralyzed from the waist down. He watched from a window when a young man fell down the main stairs and broke his arm, and he was even spotted sitting in a reading room in the library where a man had suffered a seizure. He was all over the place, with reports dating back 20, sometimes even 30 years. Today's construction work on the parking lot came to a complete stop. The area was corded off by police. I walked by just in time to see them pull out the skeletal remains of a man in an old, tattered red pullover. <laughs>